You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I grew up Southern Baptist, and we were encouraged to look suspiciously at a number of things. Foremost among them were the consumption of alcohol and the high church celebration of saints from Christian history. When I left the Baptist Church, I reconsidered both of those prohibitions, and in light of the New Testament, I began to see them both as gifts to Christians. Still, I'm hoping my teenage self isn't somehow listening to this conversation in some sort of quantum physics way. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and our guest today is Dr. Michael P. Foley, whose latest book, Drinking with the Saints, A Sinner's Guide to a Holy Happy Hour, is an insightful and humorous combination of alcohol and the church calendar. Uh, He is an assistant professor of patristics at Baylor University, and I'm delighted that this book has brought him on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Thank you, Michael. I'd like to begin, if you don't mind, by talking about the structure of Drinking with the Saints. This isn't really a book you just read straight through. Can you talk about how it's organized and maybe about the way you envision people using it? So the book is designed to be practical. That is to say, it's designed for the liturgical year and its use. So what I do is I pair beer, wine, and cocktail suggestions with the various feast days of the church year in their chronological order. So there'll be, most of the book is organized according to months. So you just go to January or July and you see whose saint is it and find a description of the saint and then a drinking suggestion. And so, you know, you, you, your reader will pick a, pick a day that he or she wants to uh, make the drink and, and, uh, and, and flip through the book and find, find, find the same for that day. Exactly. So you can, uh, what a lot of people do, I've discovered, is that when they buy the book, the first thing they do is find out what the drink is for their birthday. Oh. Or, or something like that. I didn't even think about that. My my first impulse was just to uh, do one every single day, and then I realized I would be spending thousands of dollars on uh, liquor. It can add up. Yeah. <laughs> so my wife and I have been doing the Saturday one each week on, on Friday nights. Oh, very good. That's a good idea. I also find myself wondering what audience you imagine for yourself while you were writing the book. It, it comes very clearly from a Catholic sensibility. You might even call it like a neo Chestertonian sensibility, but then your website encourages non-Catholics and even non-Christians to buy the book. What what would you say people from other faith traditions have to gain from drinking with the saints? Well, you're right that it is coming from a Catholic point of view, and I like your characterization of it as neo-Chestertonian. But what I found is that, practically speaking, uh, non-Catholic Christians and even non-believers have really gotten a kick out of the book. Um, I teach at Baylor University, which, as you may know, is a Baptist university. It's actually a dry campus. But many of my Baptist colleagues have enjoyed the book and have profited from it. So I think, you know, you mentioned your own uh, background. I think that there is uh, a sort of greater convergence on the salutary use of alcohol among different kinds of Christians than there has been in the past. Yeah, I think that's true. And even even the more conservative Christian colleges. I teach at a Christian and Missionary Alliance school, and and they lifted the ban on faculty drinking a few years ago. Exactly. Uh, even in the ten or eleven years that I've taught at Baylor, I've seen shifts in attitudes. Let's let's talk about that. What is it? What is it like um, writing this book about alcohol on a on a dry campus that's affiliated with the denomination that has traditionally been teetotaling? 
Well, um, I didn't write the book until I got tenure. (laughs) (laughs) Our press liaison keeps making fun of me about this interview. She wanted to know uh, how much longer I'm going to have a job. (laughs) (laughs) But on a serious note, uh, Baylor is a great place to be as a Catholic, actually. I... uh, in some respects, I'm freer to be a Catholic theologian at Baylor than I am at some Catholic institutions. At Baylor, at the very worst thing I am is an exotic curiosity. Um, so it, it, it has been no problem, and I actually support Baylor's policy regarding alcohol. If Baylor, I admire Baylor trying to remain true to its, its religious heritage, and if that heritage involves a dry campus, then that... That's so be it. The students are allowed to drink or is it just not on campus? It's just not on campus. I don't think they have to sign anything saying they won't drink. And the faculty don't have to make such a pledge either. But um, strictly speaking, alcohol is not allowed on campus. And when we host uh, incoming or visiting faculty and we take them out to dinner, we cannot buy them alcohol. Oh, interesting. Do you make them by their own, or <laughs> no? That what, if, instead of you know crediting the department, the faculty has to pick up the tab. <laughs> <laughs> I heard uh, Willie Nelson got kicked out of Baylor for drinking, which is is that true? I, I, that's what I heard. I don't know. You 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 might know that better than I would. I I, I didn't know Willie Nelson went to Baylor, but the the idea of him um, getting so drunk they kicked him off, kicked him out of school, uh, appeals to me for some reason. For some reason, me too, even though uh, I feel sorry that he got kicked out. <laughs> I, I guess they don't have a statue of him. That, that Exactly. As I said in the introduction, I grew up an ostensibly teetotaling Southern Baptist. Uh, I'm Presbyterian now. That is a denomination that certainly has no particular objection to alcohol, but I still can't imagine a Presbyterian writing Drinking with the Saints, and I can't even really imagine an Episcopalian or Lutheran writing it, although you have some good Episcopalian jokes in there. Um, what is it about Catholicism that makes a project like this particularly possible? Well, being Irish helps. <laughs> uh, it, yes, there is just sort of a long uh, tradition of Catholicism and alcohol. And yes, there are those sort of Irish stereotypes. But in general, uh, Catholic culture has been very good at the responsible use of alcohol. I'm thinking particularly of Mediterranean cultures. Italy has a wonderful tradition of food and wine, and at the same time, they have, uh, I think it's the lowest alcoholism rate in Europe. The United States has an alcoholism rate of 5.5%. Italy's alcoholism rate is 0.5%. Oh my gosh. So they're drinking all the time, but they're not abusing alcohol. And I think there's something about the sacramentality of Catholicism that can create an atmosphere conducive to healthy drinking. That's so interesting because people talk about alcoholism as a, as a disease, a, a genetic thing. And, and, and if that were just across the board true, you would expect it to be mostly the same all over the world. But if Italian alcoholism rates are that low, it suggests some other view of alcoholism we ought to take. I think you're right, and genetics, of course, can play some role, but I don't think they're determinative, because another interesting case study is the alcoholism rates between the Irish in Ireland and Irish Americans. 
Irish Americans have much higher alcoholism rates. What do you think it is about American culture that breeds alcoholism? I, you know, from the Irish perspective, they just, you know, came off the boat from the potato famine and had to work 12 hours a day in factories, uh, were persecuted uh, by you know, sort of an unwelcoming uh, culture, and I think they just hit the bottle pretty hard. Um, other than that, I, I don't know. One of the things I liked about this book, you have a quote from, I think it's Aquinas, where he says you should drink to cheerfulness. I've been keeping that in mind since I read this book. I thought that was a very good like rule about how to conduct yourself with with alcohol, it's, it's it, you, you drink to a certain level and then you stop, you know? That's exactly it. And even if you're not doing it for a moral reason, moderation really is the best way to drink for a very simple and selfish reason. It is only moderation that maximizes your pleasure. When you drink immoderately, it's no longer pleasant. So it's not only the moral thing to do, it's the hedonistic thing to do. And you can save yourself some money. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things that makes this book such a pleasure is its tone. My, my wife and I were talking about this a few days ago, and she said humorous isn't really the right word. It's a funny book, but humorous isn't the right word. She says jovial is the word we should use, and I, I, think, that's, I think that's about right. I think of it as a very Friar Tuckish book, if that makes sense. Well, thank you. I was actually going for something like that, and I think jovial is a, is a very kind adjective for it. Um, one of the distinctions I make when I talk about healthy drinking versus unhealthy drinking is the difference between fun and merriment. Um, there's nothing wrong with having fun, but fun is usually something that you can do alone. You know, someone can have fun playing a video game alone in a room. But when you make merry or you have a merry time, there's a certain communal aspect to it, a certain old-fashioned wholesomeness that um, that is often missing in our culture today. And one of the goals of the book is to increase Christian merriment. And there, too, we're back to that Mediterranean attitude, where, where food, food and wine both are, are meant to be shared, not to be eaten alone in shame. <laughs> precisely, precisely. And, and we should rejoice at the created goods that God has given us, and re rejoice in the right way through gratitude and moderation. But absolutely, we should do that. Can you talk about why, uh, beyond, beyond the merriment issue, why, why humor is such an important part of this book? That's a good question. I hadn't thought of why it was an important part of the book, but it, you're right that it did become an important part of the book. Uh, I think it is, I, you, you mentioned the sort of neo-Chestertonian attitude, I'm very much moved by Chesterton's last line in his book, Orthodoxy, that God's greatest secret while on earth was his mirth. That somehow mirth is essential to Christian witness. And when you get together to drink with friends, there should be a certain mirth and merriment. Another difference between healthy drinking and unhealthy drinking is that healthy drinkers drink to remember they drink out of a sense of joy. Unhealthy drinkers drink to forget uh, and out of a sense of sorrow. And I'm certainly encouraging the former but not the latter. I think it was Chesterton. and Maybe, maybe I read this in your book and maybe I read it somewhere else. I can't remember. Chesterton said, uh, always drink when you're happy and never drink when you're sad. 
I, that could very well be Chesterton. I also thought it might be Belloc, but it is, it is a truism, and it, it very much applies to this book. And they're kind of a two-headed monster anyway. Exactly. Well, I, I, we should talk more about alcohol, I suppose. Uh, in your introduction, you talk about the numerous contributions that Christianity and Christians have made to the history and world of alcohol. Something, again, that if, if people grew up in a teetotaling denomination may shock them. Uh, can you go over some of the most important contributions Christianity has made to alcohol? Well, a number of w liquors and liqueurs were invented by Christians. Whiskey was invented or perfected by Irish monks. They discovered the distillation process from continental Europe, brought it over to the British Isles, and then applied it to various kinds of grains to create whiskey. And then they took that knowledge and shared it with the Scottish during their missions to Scotland. So both whiskey, Irish whiskey, Scotch, is uh, thanks to the Catholic monastic orders. The same thing goes for beer. Beer is pre-Christian, but it really comes into its own thanks to religious orders such as the Augustinians who perfected the brewing and filtration process. And then you get to uh, liqueurs like Chartreuse. Chartreuse is considered the world's finest liqueur, and it is still made in only one place, the Charter House, the headquarters of the Carthusian order, and it is such a tightly guarded secret that only uh, its formula, its recipe is so tightly guarded that only two monks at any given time know what the recipe is. Now, that way nobody can make cheap knockoff chartreuse. Exactly, which was tried. As a matter of fact, the French government tried to make cheap knockoff chartreuse 100 years ago. They secularized the property, confiscated it, kicked the monks out. Asked the, and then after they kicked the monks out, they said, oh, and can you give us the recipe to chartreuse? Sure, no problem. And, and the monks <laughs> got to be kidding us, and they left without telling them. The French government hired uh, the world's best botanists to comb through the bins that the Carthusians had left and to try to figure out what herbs they had used because it, there are over 130 herbs that are used in the making of chartreuse. And they try to reconstruct the recipe from, this, from the leftover uh, herbs. And they tried for about 30 years and were absolutely unsuccessful. The company they founded went bankrupt, and they admitted their defeat and let the monks come back to the monastery. Just for the, just for the liqueur? Yes, they basically, it was all laicite. It was done in the name of secularization, but the hidden agenda was to monopolize chartreuse, and they couldn't do it. I have not had chartreuse. You, you actually talk about it quite a bit in, in the book. Can you, can you give me some idea what it tastes like? Well, well, it is very strong. You have to be warned right off the bat. It is a sipping liqueur. So your first sensation will be one of, oh, uh, this, is, this is burning. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can get past that and you allow it to trickle down the length of your tongue, you will, dis you will discover a remarkable spectrum of flavors. It really is a remarkable liqueur. It has a sort of a chameleon-like uh, effect um, on the palate. And it's also, it was designed as a curative, as an elixir. 
To this day, when Carthusians in the order get sick, they will take a tablespoon of chartreuse. And it actually does work. It is, it is a healing liqueur. Is there a difference besides color between the yellow and the green? The yellow is sweeter and ha- is of a lower proof. The green is um, higher proof, uh, not as sweet, and is older. Its, it, it's formula has been around longer. I think sh- the yellow chartreuse is only about 200 years old. Green chartreuse is about 500 years old. Neither one of these are cheap liqueurs. I think my liquor store here is asking $50 for a bottle. That is true. By the same token, though, that is cheaper than a lot of single malt scotches. Oh, that's true. But I can't I can't do scotch. I'm a bourbon drinker. But scotch always tastes like uh, week-old cigarettes to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. And my wife, who is, you know, tiny and adorable, she loves she loves scotch. And the, the smokier, the better. So she uh, she likes to make fun of me for not being able to handle such a masculine drink. Well, it, it's, it's magnanimous of you both to get along with each other. Yeah, well, it's tr- I, I do like bourbon, so I mean, that's, uh, that's close enough, right? Oh, bourbon is sublime. A good bourbon is really wonderful. Um, we, we've talked about the monasteries in combination with Chartreuse. Um, they are, as you said, very important for the development and creation of all sorts of alcohols. What do you think it is about the monastic environment that led to that importance? I think there are a lot of conditions that were right. Probably the most fundamental is what we talked about earlier, the sort of sacramental worldview, understanding all creation as something that is to be used well um, by us for the glory of God, and to remind us of God's goodness, to see all creation as sort of a divine sign. So you, you definitely have that as the foundation. And then there are other sort of, for lack of a better word, sociological conditions, I think, that made monks such good makers of beer and wine and whiskey. For one thing, continuity. The monastery has sort of an intergenerational memory. It has a respect for tradition. It has a proven track record of teamwork and cooperation. And then lastly, when you take that Benedictine motto of ora et labora, work and pray, where you see everything you do as a prayer to God, when you apply that principle to the making of whiskey, the results are outstanding. One beer, right? I mean, the, the Trappist monasteries arguably make the best beer in the world. Absolutely. You know, that's an excellent example of it. When you, when you make beer as a prayer to God, you end up making really good beer. Well, then, and then you don't have we've, – we've talked about this several times now, but you, you don't have that diseased drinking culture because, uh, because if, if the making of the beer is a prayer, the consuming of it must also be a prayer. That's exactly so. I also wonder if it might be – you know, a common Protestant criticism of monasteries is that they, they're removing themselves from the world. But the, the making and selling of the alcohol is a way to, to kind of connect the – inside of the monastery to the outside world. That's also true. Um, sometimes monks will make products only for monastic use. That's true of certain cheeses and, and beer as well. But you're right that it's also a way of connecting to the broader world, providing a service. 
Well, the uh, content of the book is this series of pairings between St. Days and drink recipes. Now, some of the connections make a great deal of sense. A couple of Saturdays ago, it was St. Benedict's Feast Day, and the, the drinks for the day featured Benedictine, the, the very sweet liqueur. I have to say it was, it was uh, much too sweet for me. Uh, but not every connection is so obvious. How did you choose which drinks would go with which saints? It really varied. As you mentioned, some of the connections are fairly obvious. St. Benedict has founded the Benedictine Order, which has a very long paper trail of making all kinds of delicious beers, wines, and liqueurs. So St. Benedict was easy. Same with St. Dominic. Uh, Dominicans have made certain contributions to the world of liquor. But then other times, you're right, it gets a little uh, less certain. So what I often did was look for some hook in the biography of the saint that would connect it to a particular uh, drink. So maybe it was his home region, or maybe it was his symbol in Christian art that is used as an ingredient in a cocktail, something like that. Did you have anybody you, you had a particular hard time with and had to just drop from the book? I think if I applied my allegorical imagination long enough, something came through. Another advantage to the Catholic tradition. Exactly. <laughs> um, the book has a lot of classic recipes, and, and then it has some suggestions for beers and wines. But you also have invented a number of new drink recipes. Um, I have taken a shot at inventing new drinks mostly because it's the you know i was trying to make something and i only had a certain number of ingredients but i, I would love to hear about the process of developing your recipes it was touch and go and it was not something that i was initially comfortable with but um i i don't trust my own judgment uh 100 on these matters but fortunately my wife has an excellent palate and a number of friends in the area also are very reliable in this regard so before I committed anything to print, I had it thoroughly vetted by people whom I trust. Did you have particular saints in mind when you developed the drink, or did you make the drinks first and then attach them to saints? I always started with the saint. Sometimes when a saint really cried out for a drink and there was nothing that really fit them, I thought, well, then we need to make something special. For example... I do a good deal of my own scholarly work on St. Augustine, and I really wanted a good cocktail to be paired with St. Augustine. I, I couldn't find one, so we ended up actually making two cocktails in his honor, one for his sinful past and one for his conversion. I assume the sinful past uses pear liqueur? It does indeed. As a matter of fact, it does. It's called the Lusty Cauldron, which is actually <laughs> a phrase taken from the opening of Book 3 of the Confessions. Now, do you set it on fire, too? I, I was thinking about that, but I think that would spoil the flavor. <laughs> do you have any? I, I, like, I haven't just read through all the drink recipes, I'm afraid. Do, do you have any that, you, that use fire? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Saturday, July 25th, we had, uh, for the great feast of St. James, a flaming Spanish drink called quemada. It takes a Spanish liquor called aguardiente, and mixes it with sugar and lemon and coffee beans and sets it alight. That's right. I think my wife and I are drinking the, uh, the other one for that day rather than attempting to, to make that. <laughs> it looked too complicated for me. It is a big commitment, but I will tell you, we made it last year, and it is 
you wouldn't think that a hot flaming drink in the middle of July would be good, <laughs> but it was outstanding. In South Texas. Exactly. We actually had a friend over who is from El Salvador, and he paid me one of the highest compliments uh, that I've received in writing this book. He took one sip of it, and he turned to me, and he said, you are the alchemist of God. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Something for your CV. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Professor of patristics, alchemist of God. Exactly. <laughs> what, uh, what new recipe are you the most proud of? I think it would be not the lusty cauldron for St. Augustine's sinful past, but the cocktail for his conversion. It's called the Lady Continence uh, from an image he has in Book 8 of the Confessions. And it is fig vodka because he converted under a fig tree, honey, a honey simple syrup, and uh, a little bit of lemon juice. And it's really good. I didn't even know they made fig vodka, but I guess they I guess they make vodka infused with everything, don't they? It, oh, they do. They have vodka infused with wedding cake. <laughs> it, 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 it's reached absurd absurd dimensions. And if you the good news about fig vodka is if you cannot find it in your local liquor store because there are only a couple of places that do make it. If you cannot find it, it is very easy to make yourself. All you do is put dried fig in a bottle of vodka for about three days, and it and it is properly infused. Well, well that's not. And then then you don't have to you don't have to feed the infused vodka industry either. Exactly. They they deserve nothing but punishment. The wedding cake vodka in particular is. Exactly. If there's not a sign of the, the decadence of our culture, I, I don't know. I, I don't know of a better one than the the wedding cake vodka. I was shocked to see that on the shelves. You also include a toast for most, if not all, of the saints. Why are those toasts so important? Well, I do think part of the art of merriment, and this betrays my own uh, Catholic sensibilities, involves some form of ritual. To me, ritual does not destroy spontaneity or joy, but channels and enriches it. And when you add a sort of ritual dimension to a celebration, it... Uh, it just adds something more to that celebration. And that ritual dimension at a, at a party can be as simple as a toast. N just even one simple toast at a party turns an amorphous get-together into an event, an occasion. It, it adds a certain, uh, if you will, teleology to the, to the celebration. So I do think toasting is important. Unfortunately, it's sort of a dying art, so... Part of the goal is to bring back the toast and to help people recognize its importance. Did you write these toasts yourself? Some of them I did. I, probably most of them I did. Um, and others I would just, you know, find from you know, different sources. How did, you, uh, how did you come up with them? You, you pick an event from the saint's life? or Exactly. So I mean, sometimes it would even be from the liturgical prayer of the day. There may have been some line about the saint that could be easily modified into a toast. Uh, a lot of these are tongue-in-cheek. I think my personal favorite is for um, uh, the feast of Saint uh, Bibiana. She is the patron saint of hangovers. <laughs> and so uh, the toast on her day is, through the intercession of Saint Bibiana, May we never need the intercession of St. Bibiana. Excellent. 
the the one last week for St. Arnolf was uh, something about from the labor of man and the grace of God comes beer and you're supposed to say it you're supposed to say it over and over again until you believe it. Absolutely. <laughs> Fortunately, we only had to say it once. We already we, good, good. <laughs> we believed that one. The other the, the other new ritual, I don't know how new this is, but you have us uh, shaking the shaker 40 times instead Absolutely. of instead of for 10 seconds or whatever. Exactly. And that is inspired by what I've been told about the importance of shaking. I mean, there's a big debate about shaken versus stirred, and there are good arguments for stirring your drink rather than shaking it. Especially the clear liquors. Exactly, exactly. But if you do shake a drink, you do want it to be really, really cold. And um, there's an old cocktail book I have from the 1930s that mentioned a certain... Uh, a certain hotel bar in Berlin where if the bartender shook the shaker less than 35 times, he was promptly discharged. <laughs> and I thought, well, we can do five better than that. So I recommend the biblical number of 40. I, you know, I'd never shaken that much. It's a great idea, though, because when you, when you pour out the, uh, the drink, it's frozen on the top. Those little shards of ice have a nice aesthetic effect. Uh, also, your hands are absolutely dying from holding the metal shaker. That's right. Which so you've is done your penance. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking I may should wear some gloves, but uh, the penance idea is better. <laughs> well, this is going up on July 27th. Uh, do we have a? Uh, do you have a drink for that day? There's actually a very fun saint for July 27th, Saint Pentalian. He was one of the 14 holy helpers of the Middle Ages, a Greek martyr who was also a physician, and according to tradition, he was martyred by being nailed to an olive tree. And when his blood touched the olive tree, it miraculously grew leaves and um, sprouted. So for his day, we have the classic 1950s cocktail, the Rusty Nail. Which is composed of what? Uh, it's two parts scotch and one part drambouille, which is a sweet Scottish liqueur. It's distilled scotch or like double distilled scotch. Is that right? It is. And then they add honey and a bunch of other things as well. You'll forgive me if I don't drink this one. I've, I've okay. had a rusty nail before. It was much too much for me. May, may I ask, was it too sweet? It was too sweet and it tasted too much like scotch. As I said, that's not, that's okay. not something I can handle most of the time. Well, there is a second drink option for St. Pantaleon, and it's called Ants in the Pants. And the, <laughs> the reason why this cocktail was chosen for him is that we actually get our English word pants from St. Pantaleon. Oh, interesting. And it's, it, history took a number of really weird turns for that to happen. He was the patron saint of Venice, the Venetians were known for wearing a certain kind of uh, breeches, and they they were known as pantaloons in honor of St. Pantaleon, and that's where the word pants comes from. Uh, what's in the Ants in the Pants? It's a very old cocktail, probably 100 years old, and it involves gin, sweet vermouth, Grand Marnier, and a dash of lemon juice. Well, I have all those things. I could uh, I could make that one. It's a good one. Prohibition era libation is is the ants in the pants cocktail. When you see when you see the gin, you figure you figure prohibition, right? Absolutely. Now, do I have to make the gin myself in my bathtub, or if you want to be authentic, 
<laughs> Try not to blow up my apartment. That's right. Is, do you like all the drinks that are in here? I mean, I've I've uh, expressed my displeasure with some of these, which I hope you don't take personally. Or do do you do you personally vouch for everything in here? I certainly vouch for everything in here so far as it is a valid and good drink. That does not mean, however, that I like them all equally. The one type of drink I don't care a great deal for is a sweet drink. I like things a little more on the, the dry side. So there are a number of sweet drinks in the, in the book because not everyone has the same palate that I do. And I don't mind them. I just would prefer something else. So you're, are you with me on the Benedictine drinks then? Oh, absolutely. Um, Benedictine by itself is extremely sweet. The B&B, which is equal parts brandy and Benedictine, does cut that down a bit. But I still find the B&B a little too sweet. What I really do like, though, is a B&B Plus. A B&B Plus is equal parts brandy and Benedictine with, I think, a, a tablespoon of lemon juice added. Oh, that would and, cut it, wouldn't it? And it, it really transforms the drink. A B&B Plus I find really good. I'll have to try that one. You've um, clearly drank hundreds and hundreds of drinks, but I suspect that you're like me and you have a few standbys you turn to again and again. My, mine, as I said, is bourbon, either straight up or on the rocks. What, what do you pour on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon? Well, um, when I started, before I started writing this book, I was simply a martini man. Uh, I always love a good, dry martini. And I think even after all the research, I would consider that my standby. Do you use gin or vodka? Well, you know, again, there are some uh, heated debates about which one is better. I do think a gin martini is probably the superior uh, libation. But a vodka martini, I find, especially as I get older, is just sort of easier on the system. Vodka seems to be a, a gentler alcohol. And I don't know how to explain that or why that's so, but it just seems to me to be the case. Do you use cocktail onions or uh, olives? Uh, my wife prefers olives. I like the cocktail onions. Would you like to go on a rant here about the monstrosities that are called martinis at bars and restaurants across this great nation? Well, as I do mention in Drinking with the Saints, this book does not endorse heresy. <laughs> so apple martinis are not to be mentioned in Drinking with the Saints. <laughs> not, not, you know, chocolatinis and all that stuff. It's just horrifying. No, it's 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 anathema set. A, a, a generation of young people are growing up thinking that's what a martini is. Martini yeah. should taste like medicine. It should be very, very cold. It's another sheer sign of the decline of the culture. <laughs> the other thing I learned from your book is that the uh, giant martini glasses I have in my house are uh, upsetting. Well, as long as you don't fill them to the top, you'll be okay. But you're right that the average size cocktail glass has grown considerably over the decades. And uh, you, you need to be aware of that because having a three-martini lunch in 1950 does not mean the same thing as having a three-martini lunch today. Today, if you had a three-martini lunch, you'd be under the table. That's but, true. Uh, but in 1950, the glasses were much smaller. Um, yeah, I, I actually replaced my wine glasses with much smaller versions when I read that. I, I haven't been able to find affordable, smaller martini glasses yet. Not that I've looked terribly hard. <laughs> well, you can still use the big ones as long as you just know where to 
the point to fill it up too. Yeah, but then you lose the aesthetic effect, right? I mean, when it's when you've got yeah. a giant martini glass filled up a fifth of the way, it's kind of sad looking. <laughs> I see your point. I like to end these interviews by uh, looking toward the future. I know you're in the midst of promoting this book right now, but do you have another project lined up? Well, you're right that the current project is simply to uh, get the word of, out about drinking with the saints. We're also coming up with a, a line of products. We have uh, aprons and cocktail napkins and uh, measuring glasses, that um, some of which are already available on the Drinking with the Saints uh, website. And there may be um, spin-offs of the book down the, down the line. So you, you haven't heard the last of this book yet. What kinds of spin-offs are you thinking about? Well, um, maybe more particular... Um, iterations such as you know, drinking with the Irish saints or drinking with the Italian saints. Um, another idea that's been bandied about would be a sort of drinking with the saints guide to wine or a drinking with the saints guide to beer. Um, these are things that the, the publisher and I have been discussing. Have you thought about doing drinking with the teetotaling Protestant preachers? That would be a rather short book, but it'd be an interesting one. <laughs> I, you could assign you can assign the uh, the drinks to them, even though they would be horrified by them. That's right. <laughs> well, you do know you mentioned bourbon. You do know that bourbon was invented by a Baptist preacher. Oh, is that true? I didn't know that. It is. Yes, I, mm-hmm. I boy, and I I chastised myself for not remembering his name. I think it was Elijah something, but uh, he is credited with being the inventor of bourbon. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'm more Baptist than I imagined myself to be. <laughs> Just a Walker Percy affectation, I think. There you go. Have you you've read Percy's essay on bourbon? I love that essay on bourbon. Yes. I think about it all the time. Anytime <laughs> I sit down, he, what, he says, uh, "Is this all there is?" Listening to the grass grow and Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> so, when are you going to open the Drinking with the Saints bar? And am I going? Are we all going to have to come to Waco to to go wow. there? <laughs> That seems I like the next step. Before, but you're absolutely right. You could do a chain of them all across <laughs> all across the country, across the world, really. That's right. The only bar with icons. <laughs> sure, not the only one. There must be there must be one somewhere. Well, I've mostly steered this conversation. Is there anything you would like to uh, to say or add? Anything our listeners should know? We'll put a link in the show notes to how you can buy the book and to your website so they can order their bar supplies. Well, excellent. No, I, um, we're also on Facebook. You can follow us there as well. Um, my goal with Drinking with the Saints is not for it to be a sort of closed canon, but for it to be sort of a, uh, an ongoing developing thing. So, for example, someday, I haven't set this up yet, I would like to be able to solicit opinions from the readers and, you know, what, what kind of cocktail should we have for so-and-so's feast day? And expand upon the original, uh, the, the original contribution. So that's something else to sort of keep your eye out for. Well, I really cannot recommend this book highly enough. If any of our listeners are even moderately interested in alcohol culture, this uh, th- this book is a must buy. And as I said, we'll put a we'll put a link in the show notes at ChristianHumanist.org. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Mike. Thank you, Michael. I had a great time. Uh, the, the Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.